All right. As always, we'll begin with prayer. Asking the Lord to bless our time together. You have your prayer list in front of you. Who are you waving at? Don't be waving at me, Damon. Um, all right, any, let's pray. Looking over the list. You got your list in front of you? We'll pray. All right, y'all. Dana, don't be caught. Don't make me put you in the corner. All right, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you tonight for your grace and mercy. We thank you for who you are and for all that you have done and what you are doing amongst us, God. We, we again, as always, we come and we, um, we just thank you for uh, your hand upon us as we're in the building expansion program and all the construction that's going on and uh, just the things that they're getting done and how quickly things are moving. God, we thank you for uh, keeping all that, uh, keeping us in step with what you're doing here. We pray that you continue to do so, and all this would be for your glory. We know that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. So, Father, we pray that you would just be with us and that you would help us to um, just glory, glorify your name in the midst of all this. God, we pray for our brother who is um, he's at Villa Maria right now, but he's going home on hospice God, we pray that you would watch over him, that you would be with him. I know that he is in a lot of pain and that he is uh, sleeping a lot and not feeling good. I just pray you give him comfort in his body. pray that you would watch over him, that you, your spirit would come and just give him peace, comfort, be with his family as they're, uh, they're around him, God, and that you would just, uh, just make this a time of rest as, um, as he goes through this time. Lord, we look forward to that eternal glory uh, because of your son and your gospel. We thank, we thank you for that and for the uh, looking forward to the day when we'll all be together again. God, we pray for one of our sister here's mother that's still in the, uh, in the well, moved to a nursing facility now. God, I ask that you would just continue to be with her, and we pray for healing. We pray that she would uh, just continue in, in the rehab and the getting better. God, we ask that you would watch over her and be with her. Lord, we have another one of our sisters here that's also in hospice. Uh, God, we pray that you would be with her. Uh, and her husband, God, that you would watch over them and that you would um, bring peace in the midst of all this comfort in their bodies and in their minds, God, and that you would just uh, rain down your mercy and your peace upon them through this. Thank you for successful surgery for one of our dear sisters here, God. We thank you that she's home recovering. Uh, God, it's going to be well, four or five weeks now before they start rehab on her. So, God, I pray that you would be with her as she's waiting for that. God, and that you would help her to move around as much as she can, do the exercises that they've, they've asked her to do, God, and just be with her through this healing process. God, we also have another lady that um, is uh, uh, of us here that is um, on hospice, and uh, the family is, is thinking she may, she may be going to be with you in, in the next few days or this week. God, we pray that you would just comfort them. Thank you for that family who has just sat by her side and, and ministered to her through all of, the, all of this time. God, we pray that you would um, just continue to give peace and comfort to them. Um, thank you that she's uh, not in pain, that she's uh, sleeping uh, a lot. And God, we just ask that you, would, um, that you would do your will in this situation. God, we often don't know how to pray, but we know that uh, an eternal reward wait, awaits her, God. And I know that uh, she's looking forward to that for sure. 
God, we pray that you would uh, be with uh, all of the people that are um, first responders and people connected to the tragedy in Allen, Texas, and that you would watch over them, that you would be in the midst of that situation uh, and the other situations that are um, uh, in the news today. God, we pray that you would be with them, watch over them. Uh, God, we have some people here in our church that were connected to that to that town, God, and so uh, loved ones, friends, neighbors, God, we pray that you would just watch over them, that you'd be with them. God, we had a, a really big scare today as uh, uh, one of our one of our dear dear couples um, had a, had a scare with their baby today, God, and I thank you that uh, in the midst of uh, uh, of what could have been very, very bad. You, you brought healing, you brought protection, uh, God, and uh, there's, there's nothing wrong, and they sent them home. So I thank you for your hand upon that family. I thank you for watching over them, God, and we give you glory for it. God, help us tonight as we go through yet another difficult passage of Scripture. God, help us to be clear, to make it clear. We need your spirit, we need your wisdom, we need your guidance. God, help us to uh, walk through this text and understand that it is, it is our text. It's not just a history lesson. So we pray that you would help us apply it to our lives and that you would be with us as we read your word. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is, I want to get through verse 19 of chapter 23, 23, 1 through 19. I don't know if we will because there's a lot here. But this will be the end of what we've been calling the Book of the Covenant, the case laws and the commands that deal with the covenant. And after this, we, we start getting back into narrative, which I am so excited for. Um, we're going to finish this section, hopefully. So after giving the command, the commandments to Moses, the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, remember Moses went up on the mountain, the Lord spoke to him, and basically at the beginning of chapter 21, verse 1, he said, these are the rules that you will tell my people, and from that point all the way to this point, we've been walking through all of those commands, all of those case laws, all of those applications. The Lord spoke to him, giving them examples of case law which kind of provided Israel with a pattern of how they're going to apply the Ten Commandments. So in this final section of that section, it begins with laws about the need for absolute honesty in our speech, both as witnesses in like a court setting, a trial, uh, but also not just that, but generally in our interactions with one another. So let's read verses 1 through 3. And then we'll, we'll talk about those. It says, You shall not spread a false... Remember, this is God talking to Moses. Moses will then relate this to the people. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So this is clearly an application of which command? Which commandment? Yeah, thou shalt not bear false witness, the ninth commandment. You, that's basically what we're, it's applying that in many different situations and settings. And here, notice it's, it's phrased, 
You shall not spread a false report. Not just bearing false witness. He gets to that. We're going to talk about the courtroom scene uh, in a moment. But he says you shall not spread a false report. How many different ways can we, just as people, daily life, walking through life, how can we spread a false report? Huh? All the people that you see. Well, yeah, I mean, but what kind of false reports? Maybe I asked the question wrong. I know you can spread it to anybody that you meet, but what kind of ways do we spread false reports? Gossip. Gossip? Yeah. Internet. <laughs> the internet, the false report goes all over the world before. Yeah. Yeah, lying, just, just out and out lying, giving a false report. We know this. Basically, a false report's a lie. you know. But there are other ways, too. We can take people out of context uh, when they say something, and it's in the context of something they mean, and we take it out of that and make them say or sound like they say something they didn't mean. Um, and to the gossip point, you know, it might be a true thing that you say that's gossip, but when we tell something that we heard without knowing whether it's true or not, then we're spreading a false report. We could be spreading a false report. So whenever we fail, just a, this is not a perfect definition. It's one that I just kind of came up with and you push back on it. You tell me if I need to add or take away something. But whenever we fail to tell the truth and nothing but the absolute truth, we're, we're spreading a false report. You think that's a good definition? It may not be. I'm just asking. <clears throat> Whenever we fail to tell the truth, um, yeah. and we fail to tell the entirety of the truth. That's a false report. Right. If we don't do that, it's a false report. So taking people out of context, saying people said something, but not including another part that may vindicate them from what the, you know. Whenever we don't tell the truth, and nothing but the truth, we're spreading a false report. And what kind of damage does false reports do to people? Hurts of character. Yeah, it, it hurts them for sure. If it gets back to them, it's painful, breaks relationships. It, it maligns their character toward people for, for sure. So this was, um, this was not just the command was you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And an application of that that God gives to Moses is included in that command is you are not to spread a false report. You're not to give a false report, but also not to spread a false report. So what do we do when someone comes to us with a false report or a, like maybe it's true, maybe it's not, I don't know, but this is what I heard. What do we do? Don't spread it for sure. Don't, don't spread it for sure. Maybe you might even say, I knew a man one time who said, he, he said, you see this right here? This ain't no garbage can. <laughs> and he said, don't be pouring your trash in these ears. Don't be pouring your trash in these ears right here. I don't want so we could, we, yeah, we could definitely do that. We can definitely do that. But not only are we to not spread a false report, we're not to join ourselves with a guilty or a condemned person, what the ESV calls a wicked person, in order to be a malicious witness. The word malicious you might be familiar with. It's a Hebrew word. It's Hamas. You ever heard that word? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we know that word. Whole organization named themselves Hamas, meaning violence. So it's talking about spreading reports uh, and joining with people who spread reports or bear false witness or bring uh, a, a false charge as a malicious or a violent witness. Um, that is, in essence, the opposite of loving one another, which is what 
signifies all of the second table of the law, the, the last six commands um, where we don't lie, don't steal, don't, they're all summed up by love one another. So these are case laws that are applicable examples of situations in which we may be tempted to break the command to not bear false witness. And included in that command to not bear false witness is don't join with people that are making false witness. And don't do it in this specific setting here and in verses 6 through 9 is a courtroom, like a, an actual testimony before a magistrate. We're going to see that later. So it's including in that. And it says we're not to side with the many. We're not to side with the many in verse 2. You shall not fall in with the many to first do evil. So you don't let peer pressure or the majority rule or majority opinion or the cultural whatever of the day, uh, you don't fall in with that to do evil. But it says, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, speaking specifically of a trial situation, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Do you see that? The temptation warned against here is being, I don't know, swayed against doing or speaking truth because the majority is against you. Where do we find that? I know we find it. Okay, you can picture 12 people on a jury doing that. If 11 people are saying the guy's guilty and you're, you're, you think he's innocent, or if 11 people say he's innocent and you think he's guilty, he says, he says we're not to pervert justice by falling in with the many. Uh, but unless any of y'all got jury duty tomorrow, we're just going to work and we're just going, going home. How does that apply in our daily lives where we might be tempted to side with the many to do wrong or to join in a false report? In the work environment. Work environment. Mm -hmm. So an example would probably be, you just off the top of my head, you know, my whole, my whole company is cheating on their, on their numbers for their books. And am I going to join with them? Am I going to say that it's not happening because my whole company is doing it? Uh, that'd be a tough temptation because you're talking about losing your job if something like that were to happen. That's a tough temptation. Where else? Culturally, are we tempted to side with the many rather than do what God's called us to do, speak truth and love? Isn't that exactly what's happening in our society today? Uh, it is exactly what's happening. And the funny thing is, it's been happening for centuries, but you really see it with the invent of social media and news, 24-hour news cycle and just information being pumped at you all the time. Everybody with an internet connection has a platform now. I mean, you just see the just voices echoed that you might not have seen 30 years ago. Uh, and so culture has an even more impactful influence on our thoughts, on our daily life, on, on how we see news reports, on how we see what's going on in the world, because everybody can chime in on it, and it goes all over the world in half a second. Uh, and so we are called to be critical thinkers. When I say critical thinkers, I mean we're not, be, we're not called to be gullible, but we are also called in that critical thinking to make the Bible and the Word of God the standard by which we judge all things. So there are plenty of, I mean, if you're on, if you're on Twitter right now, there are plenty of, of debates right now going on, even among people who bear the name Christian, who say that they're Christian, that are 
honestly just don't look much different than the world, don't argue much different from the world, and are fighting for worldly things. And so it might be easy because in cancel culture especially, you say the wrong thing. If you go against, um, you know, you go against the, the, the mob on uh, whatever, whatever thing we're talking about, you know, abortion's a great, a great example. You know, we, we go against the mob on that and not only will you be inundated if you're on social media with people bashing you about that, but in some certain circumstances, there have been people that have have canceled businesses and the guy the cake baker that wouldn't bake for bake a cake for the homosexual couple and i mean he's spent millions of dollars now in court you know battling those things and i mean there's just such a temptation i don't want to get in the battle i don't want to be in the fight i don't want to i don't want to be canceled i don't want to so we either we either, in the worst case scenario, join with the crowd to, to bear false report or say or do evil or, or even, uh, not, not worst case, but even less, less worse, less worse, a little, maybe a little better, but not much better. We just don't say anything. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to say anything about truth or, or what God's word says. And that, that, you know, we might, we sit here and we're in church and we all pretty much, you know, we share values and we share the truth of God's word and we share the idea that God's word is God's word and it is the standard so we can talk amongst this freely. But let's be honest, I mean, you go out into the public square in your workplace and school and, you know, it's it's very tempting. It's very tempting just to, just to, uh, to fall in with, fall in with the many, to be swayed to either speak wrongly by the majority. But God tells us not to do evil or wrong because we're pressured by what everyone else is doing. So what it says in verse 2, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. So we're not going to, we're, not, we're called to follow Jesus, not the majority, even if it costs us, even if it costs us. And I, I'm not under any illusion that that's easy or that's, uh, there's no temptation to not do that. But we are called to follow the Lord, not the majority opinion. In fact, New Testament, we walk through Acts, following Christ often means that we stand against the opinions of the majority or, or the many or the culture. Um, verse 3 tells us that we're not to pervert justice, even to give preferential treatment to a poor man. Does that surprise you that that's there? The other side of the coin is going to be in verse 6. It's going to say, don't, don't pervert justice against the poor man either. So there's two sides of the coin. We don't pervert justice either way. But don't pervert justice to a poor man. Specifically talking about in a lawsuit or in any conflict that would come before the elders of Israel. Why would somebody pervert justice for the, a poor man? Feel sorry for him. Feel sorry for him? You know, he's had a hard life. Or taking advantage of him. We, we seem to side with, we can't, human nature is to side with the wealthy or the rich or the well-affluent versus trying to deal with the gentleman. Yeah, yeah, and that particular objection is going to be in verse 6. It's going to say don't side with a wealthy person. But this is saying don't side with a poor person if he's wrong. So in a lawsuit or conflict, the poor person, you're right, would be the one that has everybody's sympathy, you know? I mean, your heart would go out. This guy, let's just, you know, just personify him for a minute. He's, he 
probably been through a hard life, got a hard way, doesn't have any opportunity, doesn't have any, you know, it'd be easy to side with him, to be to lead to lead us to be partial to him in whatever case is going on, even if he's wrong because he's just been through so much. And I mean, is this just another thing? I mean, there is a school of theology that's called, it was developed in the 80s, but comes uh, earlier than that, called liberation theology. Ever heard of that? Liberation theology? Uh, today's, today's application of it is widespread. It's called critical theology, specifically critical legal theology, which has morphed into critical race theology, critical gender theology, and all those things. And it teaches what is called the preferential option for the poor. Have you ever heard that? Most people, only people really in legal circles have heard that. The preferential option for the poor. Basically, this was a fundamental a forerunner of what we see today in, in intersectionality and critical race theory and, and those kind of things. The idea is that if there's a case of rich versus poor, you must side with the poor because of the wrong that he suffered in society because he hasn't received the same benefits as everybody else in society. Uh, today, critical theories um, and the different critical theories and intersectionality and those kind of things, uh, in those theories, everyone is classified as either an oppressor or one of the oppressed. And if you're one of the groups that is deemed to be oppressed, then you receive preferential treatment. You receive, and this is the theology that, that goes behind this. This uh, perspective, you know, has been it's in our society today it's become so prevalent in every area of modern thought that you probably don't have any problem coming up with some examples in your mind of how you see this playing out yet scripture is emphatically clear throughout god make no mistake god does have compassion on the poor he does have compassion on the oppressed, those who are truly oppressed and under, under you know, the, the unjust, unjust treatment by rulers and by the rich and by all of those things. God does, does have those things. But he never calls for perverting true justice based on someone's status or their race or their whatever, or their gender or their whatever. Justice is justice. There's right and then there is wrong. And so he's saying to Israel in, in, in a lawsuit that comes before you, the elders of Israel, you are not to pervert justice. You are not to be impartial to the poor man because he's poor. And later we'll see in verse 6, you're not to be impartial to the rich man because he's rich. You are to judge by the merits of what is right and wrong based on God's law. Any questions, comments about that? You have to be patient. You have to look at the facts. The facts. You need to get the facts to the point it's actually easy to say it's a stereotype it's this answer right right it takes work and effort to get to and hear the facts right right there's a she said yeah she said there's a difference between being compassionate and lying if you're perverting the truth or perverting justice then that's a lie and indeed god is a god of justice that's that's really the foundational basis of the gospel. Sin must be paid for. It cannot be wiped under the rug. Don't matter if you're poor or rich or great or doing good works or black or white or this nationality or that nationality. God requires perfect justice. And so as a God of justice, he requires his people to be, God, to be not gods, but people of justice. 
uh, and it reflects his nature. So you have a court case, poor man and rich man, you judge by the merits of the case. Who has done wrong, who has done right based on God's law? And if the rich man in whatever case is before you, if you're an elder of Israel, the rich man is in the right, then you judge for the rich man. If the poor man is in the right, you judge for the poor man, and you are not impartial in any way uh, to somebody's status or somebody's whatever. We're going to talk about bribes here in just a minute. Any other questions about that? All right. This is weird, but I don't, I don't know why, but verse 4 and 5 talk about impartiality in our love for one another. And then 6 through 9 go back to talking about courtroom justice, that kind of thing. So let's look at 4 and 5. I'm not going to skip over them and then come back. It says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him, the one who hates you, with it. You shall rescue it with him. So here we see another form of impartiality. We are to be impartial in how we love our neighbors as ourselves. Even if the neighbor is your enemy. Do you see it? And we're given two examples. The first one, a man comes upon an animal of his enemy. That's what it says. And this animal is just out on the loose. What will be the temptation? Just let it go. Yeah. I mean, just let it wander off. Let it keep going. No one's ever going to know. Nobody's ever going to know. And you surely could justify it. It's not my problem. It's not my animal. It's not my problem. This guy hates me and he's an enemy of mine. Uh, I didn't cause this mess. I'm too busy to stop and help. But God's law, love one another. The right thing to do is to catch the animal and to take it back to its owner. Your enemy. Can you imagine? Even if the person is your enemy, you're to be impartial and loving one another. Even your enemy. That's a hard command to keep, isn't it? <laughs> loving your enemies. The second situation involves encountering the actual enemy himself and his animal is under a burden. The idea is that the animal has collapsed under the weight of the burden. If you've got an NIV in front of you, that's what, that's what it'll say. And notice, he doesn't just say this person is your enemy. He gets more specific saying, this guy hates you. So it's not just, well, we're enemies. We had a falling out. No, you come across a guy that hates your guts. And he's stuck there and his animals collapsed under a burden. Even in this situation, you are not to leave him there. It says you are to, you are to refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue the animal with him. Now that's easy for us to understand. It's easy for us to agree with. That's what love looks like. That's what we should do. But man, when it comes to our own enemies, people that hate us, you know, you imagine someone who hates me and all the things they've done to show their hate for me. When it comes to our own enemies, boy, I'm going to tell you what, we do some of the most spectacular mental gymnastics to justify not helping out. <laughs> I mean, we're Olympian gymnasts able to, able to just figure out a way to say why I don't have to love this person because they're my enemy. In fact, Philip Ryken gives this quote. It says, do you have enemies? He's talking to his audience. Do you have enemies? Has anyone mistreated you? 
Is there someone who antagonizes you? Are there people you secretly try to avoid? Is there anyone who arouses your animosity? If there is, then this is the person you're called to love. Now, Philip is a good expositor of Scripture, but he's not authoritative. So to give you an authoritative quote, Jesus said, You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So again, we see here impartiality in how we love one another, how we love our neighbor. Questions, comments? Anybody want to give practical advice about loving neighbor? <laughs> or an example of when you loved a neighbor? Uh, previous pastor that I worked with always said, he said, I don't care how much I hate you. If you make me a banana pudding thing, I'm probably going to come around. <laughs> All right, so I guess we'll go back to the courtroom then. Oh, never mind. I got another quote from Jesus. <laughs> if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. That's a tough saying, isn't it? Is that, I mean, that's in the Bible, right? I mean, I didn't, I didn't just add that for my own. That's what Jesus said. And so that, that's a tough deal. But this didn't, this didn't start. So Christ is elucidating the law. He's elucidating and clarifying the true intent of the law. So you read, we read it in Exodus, and now we read it in the New Testament. There's nothing has changed. This is what he calls God's people to do. So now we go back to the courtroom. It says, you shall not pervert justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are right. Now earlier we saw that we can't pervert justice for the sake of the poor. Now we see the other side as well. You can't pervert justice against the poor or due to your poor in this lawsuit. Some of your translations will say against the poor. Like Jim said earlier, we can't favor the rich over the poor when we're determining what's right and what's wrong. We're being partial to the rich is, let's be honest, it's probably a whole lot more common than being partial to a poorer person. Why is that so? Yeah, actually that's true. They got a better lawyer. They got more, they got more funds. They got more ways to, to fight in court. They have more resources. Money talks, indeed. So for Israel, this command is up to the judges the, in our context, the juries, the, 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 the witnesses, the power to make sure that the powerless, to protect them, to make sure justice is done. The Bible has a perfect balance. The poor are not always right, and the rich are not always wrong. But there can't be a bias either way. It can't be about who you are or what you have or the lack of what you have or your background or your whatever. Everyone in the image of God, which is every person, should receive equal justice under the law. And it should be based on the truths of, of right and wrong. 
This is stated, this law here about not perverting justice, um, it's stated again in Leviticus 19.15. It said, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So we see this, we see this clearly several times. There's a couple other quotes I could have put up there in the law. Impartiality in what's right and wrong is an absolute necessity because our God is perfect in his justice. And so verses 6 through 8 call us to do justly in all our deeds, not, not to be partial in court, not to be partial in our justice. But then in verse 7, we're again told to keep far from any kind of false charge or false report. Neither, uh, if this is applying to a court scene, neither a witness nor defendant nor a judge nor a jury should contribute to false charges. Keep from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. How do those two statements go together? Don't kill the innocent and the righteous because I will not acquit the guilty. What's he saying there? Who are, in the, in the context of this verse, verse 7, who are the wicked that God will not acquit? I know that he won't acquit any wicked, but what are the wicked doing in this verse? They're killing the innocent and the righteous. And so we're told, we're told you know, by extension, he warns us to first keep you know, giving, never give credence to a false charge. And this includes not just the courtroom, but in society, in our workplace, in our schools, in our families, in our churches, in any sphere of life. And it's because God is impartial. God's justice is perfect. Regardless of the circumstances, sin is sin. He will not acquit the wicked, meaning those who condemn the innocent, those who spread the false charge that condemns the innocent, those who are partial in their justice or in their dealings with one another. God will not hold you unaccountable. God will be the judge. So you could think of probably many situations over even the past few years, but all through history, where you know, maybe a guilty person who has a lot of resources, a rich guy, whatever, has gotten away with some injustice that he's done to a poor person or a marginalized person or whatever. Understand, God said there, there's a day of reckoning coming. There's a day I, I will not acquit. No matter what happens in this court, I will not acquit the guilty. They will stand before God. And when, when in the same vein, you know, we will stand before God. We will stand before God and he will not acquit the guilty. Are you guilty? I'm guilty. So what does that mean? What does that point us to? Jesus. Yeah, we got the right answer. It's always Jesus. That's right. That's right. God is laying out the perfection of his law. And remember the uses of the law that we talked about. The very first one drives us to the Savior. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we sin willfully because we're under grace or anything like that. This is still an offense before God when we when we pervert justice. And then he tells us that God's justice is not for sale. It's never for sale. It says, verse 8, you shall take no bribe. And this is why. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are right. So we're not to take any bribe, not to take cash, which is probably what we think of most when we think about a bribe. But what are other kind of bribes? Power. Power. Yeah, I'll give you 
position. I'll give you power. Favors. New cars. <laughs> new, okay, new cars. Yeah, absolutely. It could be even as simple as desiring the favor of a person who is in power or does have favors to give or is just, you know, just somebody we like desiring to curry that favor. We pervert justice. That is a bribe. And it says we don't take bribes. You cannot take bribes because even a person who can normally see, a normally just person, a normally person, person who normally does right, it says in verse 8, it, it blinds the clear-sighted. It's a temptation that, that blinds those who are clear-sighted. The, even the ones that are normally not that way are susceptible to the temptation and the power of a bribe. A bribe cripples the proper way of establishing justice, doing what's right before God in all cases. And that temptation is powerful. It's very powerful. Questions, comments, cries of outrage? All right, so then verse 9, we're going to continue the theme of impartiality. And verse 9 tells us what we've seen before. You shall not oppress a sojourner, a foreigner, or an alien among you. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This shows us what we've seen before in both the law and the case law that we've been working through. Uh, we're to be impartial in our treatment of everyone who bears the image of God, including those who are, uh, for Israel, non-Israelites. Uh, so we've seen this before. No need to go into super depth in it now unless you have any questions about that. So this whole section talks about basically honesty, impartiality in our dealings, specifically in court, but in every area of our life, uh, home, work, school, church, family. As followers of Christ, we're called to always be truthful, impartial, fair, because our God is a God of justice. Any questions about that? All right, next we have the laws concerning the Sabbath. And in these laws, in the laws of the Sabbath, and I'm, I'm, I'm really wanting to get through this, so I'm going to go pretty quick from now on. In these laws of the Sabbath and the festivals that follow, we're going to talk about the pilgrim feasts in, in a minute. God establishes, what he's doing is establishing a pattern of regular covenant reminders for his people uh, as to their worship, as to their rest, and as to their obedience to God. So in verse 10 through 11, he first talks about what we call the Sabbath year. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that, that the poor uh, of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyards with your, and with your olive orchards. So even today, you know, people practice this principle to one degree or another. It's wise. It's scientific. We call it, you know what we call it? Crop rotation. Right. Yeah. So it's just letting the soul replenish its nutrients. Is that why God gave this command? It tells us in the verse why he gave a command. But he also knew best. And he did know best, and it is right. But the reason in the verse is it was done as a kindness to the poor. And even to the animals. The poor first, the people, the image of God first, and then what they leave, the animals. So it was another way 
we, we talked about, we're going to talk about Sabbath day in, in a moment, but we talked about Sabbath back in the commandments about it's a day of worship, it's a day of rest, it's a day of all those things. But here he adds this. It's, it's, also, it's also showing love to one another. As the land rested from systematic planting and harvesting every single year, the poor and the animals were free to gather what they needed from those fields. You know, they didn't have modern harvesting like we have today, so there was a lot, there was a lot of seed left. There was a lot of things that would just grow, you know, naturally without without cultivation there. And so there was there were things that they could go and get. So the Sabbath year of letting the field rest was not just about it was, but it was not just about what the people owed God is not just about resting what God has given to us as a gift. It is about that, but it was not just about that. It was also a way to love one another. Now, there's some debate about whether this meant every field in Israel, every six years, the seventh year, would lie fallow in the same year so that there would be no planting, no harvesting, no nothing in the same year. Or if what's meant here is each farmer would just count six years from the time he purchased the land or got into the land and the field would rest on the seventh so that the Sabbath fields, as it were, would be staggered through Israel. I'm not sure. It could be, it could be either one. What is particularly interesting to me is the fact that he gave this command at all. Where are the people standing right now? Mount Sinai. How many of the people right now own fields, orchards, or vineyards? None. Zero. In fact, they're still eating manna from heaven every day. God's feeding them. Why does God give them this law? I mean, they think they're just going right into the promised land. We know what's going to happen. They're going to be 40 years in the wilderness. But why does God give them this law now? God knowing it's going to be 40 years before they ever get in the land anyway. Any idea? I don't have a great answer. Just what do you think? He's going to give them the land later. Yeah, it's, you see the promise? You see the promise embedded in the law? You're going to get the land. You're going to have fields. You're going to have vineyards. You're but going I to have orchards. I want you to do this and this. Yes, yes. I'm giving you the law about how you're going to manage your fields, vineyards, all those things, even though you have none right now. You're still eating the food that I'm providing you. So he gives this law about their fields, about their produce, about their possessions, basically, their land, telling them to allow food to be given to one another on the sabbatical year. And he gives them this law as he himself was feeding all of them every day, all the time. What does that say to us? Right. He didn't he didn't send manna on the Sabbath day for sure. He told him to harvest twice as much on the sixth day. Everything comes from God. Yeah, that absolutely. Everything comes from God. You're gonna get a field, you're gonna get a vineyard, you're gonna get an orchard, and I'm going to command you on the seventh year to not plow your field, not harvest your field, but leave it for the people. That's not fair. You can't tell me to do that with my field as I'm giving you food every single day from heaven. You see, it, it comes from God. What we have is from God. All we have is from God. And we are to be loving of one another. We are to allow, if we're Israelites in this situation, the poor to come onto our land and to eat anything that's on the land and to just 
you know, whatever it is that you need, you come and get it on, on our land. Why? Because you're sitting here without nothing and God's feeding you. So this, he, he may also be setting up the principle of stewardship, uh, managing what he has given us I see. I think that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying you'll be a steward of what I'm giving you, and the way I tell you to do it because I gave you when you needed. I'm giving you right now. You're getting everything from me, so don't be whining when I give you a vineyard and I tell you what you need to do with your vineyard. I think that's exactly right. So next we have the Sabbath day, verse twelve. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest so that your ox and your donkey may have rest and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Now we talked about the Sabbath day a lot when we went through the Ten Commandments. So it was for rest, it was for worship, dedication to God, a day of remembrance of God and what God has done. Uh, but here we're given another reason for this Sabbath day. It was also, once again, for the benefit of others, for the benefit of those who were servants and the servants' children and the foreigners among them. It was a way for, lack of a better word, what, what we would call employers uh, in Israel to provide rest for their servants and their foreigners and all that. Do you see that as the reason that they may be refreshed? This was a way not only to, it was for the Israelites and all the people to worship God and remember God, to set a day aside for God, to rest, but also for those who were, let's just say, on a lower social status in the culture, they, they're going to get rest too. They're going to be refreshed too. They, they're image in, in the image of God as well. And so God is telling them, this is how you're going to love one another. You're going to have a Sabbath, not just for you Israelites, but for everybody among you. And they're all going to rest. They're all going to be refreshed. You with me? So we've seen kind of a theme here. We've seen honesty with the effect of loving one another. We've seen impartiality and justice with the effect of loving one another. We've seen Sabbath ordinances for the year and for the day with the, the result of loving one another. He's teaching them how to keep the second table of the law, how to love one another as I have loved you. Now, verse 13 is where many people think, and I agree with them, that this is the end of what we've been calling the Book of the Covenant. It's the end of kind of the case laws. After this, he's going to talk about the feast, which I really want to get to. He says, pay attention to all that I've said to you. Make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. This section that we've been walking through over several weeks, it began in chapter 21, verse 1, when God told Moses, these are the rules that you should set before the people. And here it ends saying, pay attention to all the rules that I have set for you. And then he reiterates and reminds the people to remember what he has commanded and reiterates the command that they will have no other gods before him. Him, the, the first command in the commandments. Here he says, you shall not even speak their names. No hint of other gods among them. Anybody have, a, anybody have an idea why they weren't even allowed to speak the name of another god? I don't. So just tell me what you think. If you speak it, you think it. Yeah, well, I, that's good. She said, if you speak it, you think it. Don't want them dwelling on other gods. He's a jealous God. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't even want the, their name on their lips, especially in, in terms of worship, things like that. That's the command, for sure. So the next section, and this one was really interesting to me, is one I want to get to. Um, 
It concerns Israel's obligation to keep what are known as the pilgrim feasts. Now, you've probably heard of several of these. Um, All Israel was to gather three times a year in a single place and participate in these festivals that were for worship, that were for remembrance and thanksgiving. So first, let's walk through them real quick and then we'll elucidate and we'll uh, explain them a little better. First was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says, three times a year you shall keep a feast for me. Uh, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall keep eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, which we know is April. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. So this festival, this feast, commemorated the salvation God gave them, bringing them out of Egypt. And as it's, it's more, more um, instructions are added to it as you go later into the law, but it's always connected to the Passover. So Passover would, Passover would happen, and then for the, next, for the next week, it would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Exodus 12, we looked at Pharaoh let God's people go, and Israel had to leave in such a hurry that they couldn't do what? With yeast. Yeah, they couldn't make bread with yeast. So this, this festival of unleavened bread looked back to their salvation from slavery, the fulfillment of God's promise to bring them out of the land. Uh, and like I said, fuller instructions for observing the feast are given later in the, in the law, but it's always combined with the Passover. It was followed by the Passover, so the two events were connected. Next, the Feast of Harvest. I'm going to come back and we're going to talk more about this feast, but I want to show you this. The Feast of Harvest and the Feast of Ingathering. It says, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor uh, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in a year, you shall, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. Feast of harvest. Anybody else what, know what another name for the feast of harvest is in Scripture? It's the feast of weeks. Or later, it was called... So think of it. the Feast of Weeks because it was celebrated seven weeks and a day after the Passover, which makes it Pentecost. Absolutely. Feast of Harvest, also known as the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament, also known as Pentecost. This was a time of joyful celebration. People gathered for worship and thanks to God, and they would provide, they would bring the first fruits of the harvest. Harvest would be going on right now. So they would bring the first fruits of their harvest in honor of God, in in thanksgiving to God for the harvest, uh, for the grain harvest in particular. They were told to bring bread representing the beginning of the grain harvest. In Leviticus 23, it says this, you shall count 50 days to the day, that's the seven weeks plus a day, uh, after the seventh Sabbath, uh, after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, a wave offering, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be fine flour and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. So they were bringing the first fruits of their harvest that was still going on. The third pilgrim feast is ingathering, the feast of ingathering. It was also connected to the harvest, but it came seven months after the Passover when all of the crops were already gathered in and the harvest was complete. It was the celebration of the completion of the harvest. Anybody know what the other name for the feast of ingathering is? 
it is called the Feast of Booths. Because in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it required Israel to build temporary shelters, field huts, and to dwell in them. This feast happened five days after the Day of Atonement, and it lasted for a week. Uh, now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, just like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in gathering, or the Feast of Booths, looked back to God's saving work for His people. It was reminding them of the story of their salvation. After escaping Egypt, they went out in the wilderness, and what they do? They lived in tents, you know? And so all of these feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Ingathering, they were a way of the people to yearly be reminded of the story of their salvation. How after escaping Egypt, you know, they were no leaven in their bread. Uh, the, the, the provision of God along the way and, and living in tents in the wilderness. And, and in addition to that, it also reminded them um, of God's work among them, what he's done. But other than remembrance, it was also keeping these festivals. Every new generation would, in a sense, relive the Exodus experience. They would become, on these feast days, these feast, feast weeks, they would become pilgrims, experience the Passover, experience the, the unleavened bread. They would experience these things all over again. So later generations would know the work of God for his people as an act of remembrance. Now later in Le Leviticus and Numbers uh, specifically, the requirements for these feasts would be more elaborate. Would, it would give them more full requirements. of, it. And God would also add in those, in those books... Uh, the year of Jubilee, he would add instructions for the other two national holy days, the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. So all of that is to come in the rest of the law. Now, all of these feasts, it seems like just, man, that's a really neat history lesson. Thank you for sharing that. Let's go home. But it's much more than that. In these feasts, these festival weeks that God said you'll do this as a remembrance of me every year, God was foreshadowing the gospel story. The fulfillment of his, of his perfect salvation. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was connected to the Passover, what does that point to? Yeah, it points to Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, the salvation that he provided. The Feast of Harvest, harvest when the first fruits were brought in in thanksgiving to God, was done on the day of Pentecost. When God gathered the first fruits of the church as it began in Acts, the first fruits of his people, Jews from all over the world were there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 2. And 3,000 people of the Jewish nation from all over the world were saved. The fruits, the first fruits of the church. And the feast of ingathering prays for the completed harvest, all brought in. What does that point to? Yeah, the, the, first the end of history, that when all of God's people will be gathered, when, when new heavens, new earth. But also during the Feast of Booze, during the Feast of Ingathering, the priests, uh, some people say it was at the beginning of every day of the feast, and some people say at the, on the last day only of the feast, 
There was this great grand procession of the priests that went and they drew water out of the pool of Siloam and they went and they brought the water in this procession through the city and poured it out into the temple. And it was during that time, no doubt in the New Testament, that John 7.37 took place where Jesus said on the last day of feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow living rivers of living waters. Now he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So this procession, this, this, this thing that happened in the feast, it, it was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in Christ. As Christians, we're not required to keep the feast of harvest or the feast of Passover or the feast of unleavened bread or all of those things. Those feasts are part of the ceremonial law. They're fulfilled in Christ. And the church, we, we look forward to a feast, though, don't we? What feast is that? The Lord's Supper. Yeah, well, we continually do the Lord's Supper. That's my next point. The feast, marriage supper of the Lamb. The, marriage, the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb. But while we're looking forward to that and waiting, we're called to continually partake in a feast, which is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. We do that, he says, specifically in remembrance of me, proclaiming my death until I come. And so we are given, we are given in a sense, a feast as we, um, as we await Christ to return. Last two verses and we're done. <clears throat> he says, you shall not offer, these are very difficult too, by the way, I don't have all the answers. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. He's telling them how to sacrifice during these feast days. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. There's some question about how specifically, well, several of these, but verse 18 should be translated and whether it's the yeast itself that he's saying is out of bounds or the blood within the yeast that is forbidden. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened. I think that's what is entailed here. No blood in the yeast, not just the yeast being bad. So I, there were several theories, and I, I honestly, I couldn't find any source documents to corroborate anything. So um, if it's the blood mixed with yeast, which I think that it is, um, it could be a practice, a pagan practice that is documented. Uh, some pagan people sought to prolong their lives by drinking blood. Uh, Israel was specifically told never to drink blood. Um, and they would do so, the pagan peoples would try to prolong their lives in, in occult rituals where they drank, drank blood and ate blood of animals they sacrificed. And the drinking of blood, uh, one commentator said, <clears throat> you know, it just tastes so bad and it made you sick. So many cultures began to bake blood into their yeast, into their bread, and eat it, and eat it that way to prolong their life and to secure favor from the gods. So if, if that is the case, and honestly, I, I, I just don't know. If that's the case, what's being said here is, first of all, you're not going to eat blood. But second of all, you're not going to adopt the pagan practices of other gods when you worship me, when you come to these feasts, when you offer sacrifices to me. They were also to bring the best to the Lord. He says, the fat of my feast, uh, let the fat of my feast uh, remain, or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. You're not allowed to do that. The fat was to be burned up completely. Today, the fat of an animal is gross. 
and is considered unhealthy. Some of y'all might like big fatty steaks. I'm out. I don't do that. That's gross. <laughs> but in the ancient world, the fat was the choicest, juiciest part of the animal. So the temptation was not to burn the fat totally in the burnt offering, but to, to keep some back later and come and get it for, for yourself. Uh, they were to give the best part to the Lord. They were to give it to totally to the Lord as they brought sacrifices to these feasts. And this is reiterated in verse 19. The best of the first fruits of the ground you're to bring into the house of the Lord your God. Not to bring the leftovers. It was easy to... See your, especially in the Feast of Ingathering, you've got your whole crop in, and these are the great wheat deal here. Those are the ones that don't really pass muster that I'm not going to be able to use anyway. I'll just bring them to the Lord. He says you're not, not to do that, not to bring the leftovers, the best and the first. And lastly, not to cook a goat in your mother's milk. Okay, got that one? All right. Why? So this command is actually repeated three times in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of Moses. Don't boil a, go a goat in his mother's milk. Um, this was a law against offering sacrifice in the same way that the pagan nations did. So I did find several accounts of pagan nations and ancient cultures using the, the, milk of, the milk of the mother of an animal, whether it be a goat or whatever, as a cultic fertility practice among pagan nations to either help a family have kids or to ensure that the goat flock would be prosperous. Uh, so mother's milk, the idea is that the mother's milk is what makes the goat grow strong. So they would employ the use of the milk in the sacrifice in order to appease the gods and make the goat flock strong. It basically, it's a, it's a occultic fertility practice so that prosperity would come through the enticing of, of the gods. It was um, a ritual. And so it, it falls in line with the first two commands in verses 18 and 19 that when Israel celebrated the feast, when they brought offerings during the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Ingathering, those things, they were to follow God's word, not the pagan, pagan cultural practices of their day. So, and the larger principle is we are not to adopt the practices of the world in our worship or in our walking with God. But I think, and I'll take correction if there's some documentation that I can find or you can show me that's something different, but in my estimation, it was just a cultic pagan practice that was not allowed to be practiced in worship or sacrifice for the Israelites. Questions, comments? Yes. Mm. She said, out of curiosity, did the Jews still practice all of those feasts? Honestly, I know they do some. They may do all, but I know there's no sacrifice, animal sacrifice involved anymore. But I know that they... No, I'd have to say no. Because the command for these... These three in particular, the pilgrim sacrifices, was that you will assemble together in one place in Jerusalem and you will do these together. So you, they may celebrate them or uh, you know, commemorate them, but I'm sure there are a lot of Orthodox Jews that don't trek to Jerusalem three times a year anymore. Now, I do know that Jews keep the, they honor and keep and commemorate the Day of Atonement still, uh, Yom Kippur, and you know, just their, their holidays, their holy days, uh, those things like that. But following these exact commands, 
No, I don't think they do that anymore. I'm per- I know that they don't do that anymore. Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your word. God, there was so much in here that I'm just not an expert in. I pray that you would use your word and that you would use the word we read just to apply it to our lives, that we would be impartial in our love for one another, even our enemies. God, that we would be impartial in our justice, what's right and wrong, uh, in in every instance where there's conflict, where there's resolution that needs to happen between people at school, people at work, families, whatever. God, I pray that you would help us to, to maintain your word as a standard for right and wrong and not to be swayed by cultural things or bribes or any other thing. God, I pray that you would help us to worship you as you've commanded us to worship in, in honoring you the way you've commanded us to honor you and to understand that you are the giver of all things. Uh, we do love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.